Red Kite Prayer is hosting its first-ever event October 12th through 14th, 2018, the Red Kite Rendezvous. The two-and-a-half-day event will feature bikes from some of the industry's top frame builders, two gravel rides, some of the world's finest craft beers, which are brewed locally, plus enough food to make the pedaling fun. For more information or to register, go to redkiteprayer.com backslash store. The Pull is brought to you by the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, the world's premier annual gathering of bicycle frame builders and frame building enthusiasts. The 2019 show will take place March 15th to 17th at the Sacramento Convention Center in Sacramento, California. We hope to see you there. From Red Kite Prayer, I'm Patrick Brady with The Pull. On this week's show, my guest is Sam Pickman, the head of engineering for Allied Cycle Works. The emergence of Allied Cycle Works is notable as much for the quality of the carbon fiber frame sets they make as where they make them. At a time when all of the major bike makers produce their carbon fiber bikes in Asia, Allied has gained distinction for producing carbon fiber frames in its facility in Little Rock, Arkansas. That's reason enough to pay attention to them, but the fact that they are producing carbon fiber frame sets that don't cost as much as a motorcycle makes them all the more interesting. Pickman is Allied's head of engineering. He got his start in the test lab of Specialized and eventually rose through their ranks to lead the engineering efforts behind what Specialized called the new Tarmac, the company's fifth iteration of its famous road bike. Pickman began to see shortcomings to sourcing product overseas and left the company with a vision in his head for developing and producing carbon fiber products in a different way. He'd barely packed up his desk, though, when Allied's founder and CEO, Tony Carklins, called him to enlist his help. The bikes that have emerged from Pickman's workstation, the Alpha and Alpha Allroad, features some of the most sophisticated construction methods being used in carbon fiber, and yet are often less expensive than products from Allied's competitors. I needed to find out from Pickman how they produce such high-quality product without charging luxury prices. Well, Sam Pickman, thanks for joining me on The Pool. How are you, man? I'm great. How are you? Things are good. Uh, what's what's late summer like in Bentonville? Or are you still in Little Rock, right? No, no, I'm in Bentonville oh, now. Oh, you are in Bentonville. Okay. So, well, how long have you been in Bentonville? Uh, Bentonville now, maybe three, four weeks. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's really it's really nice. I mean, you've been up here. You know the deal. It's The riding is good. Um, it's it's Arkansas, so the weather's still hot, but mm-hmm. uh, but it's starting to cool down a little bit. How hot is hot? You know, today's not bad at all. I'd be surprised if today was even 80 degrees, so. Oh, heck, for the South, a day where it's not at least into the 80 degree, into the 80s, uh, yeah, know. that's a win. I know. <laughs> yeah, this is, it's always like one step away from horrible heat here. 
That's what I've noticed when I've looked at the weather forecast, that it's not like Memphis where I grew up, where it's like, no. oh, you just want to stay inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's still you can still do outside stuff here. It's not it's not too, too bad. And the riding is is just so great. Yeah, I I haven't really had a chance to do any road riding there yet. It's all been mountain biking, but the mountain biking so good. I think I can be forgiven for kind of focusing on that first. Yeah, the mountain biking is great. And it's funny, like usually uh, in most places I've lived, if you have just like an hour, you just go out on the road bike, right? Because you just got to get it done or whatever. Yep. And here it's totally different. If I have a little bit of time, I go out on my mountain bike because the trails are just so accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, but the road riding is great too. And, uh, and the gravel too. I mean, there's just, it's a lot of good riding. A lot of good riding. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll get back out there at some point soon. You should. So, so when we first met, you were a long-haired bike racer, pretty freshly out of college, running a test lab for Specialized. Yeah. Before we go into your work there, let's talk about how you got into that work. What was your degree and how well did it prepare you for the work you got into with Specialized? Yeah, so I, I mean, I was mechanical engineering. I went to University of Rhode Island. And I think every engineering degree prepares you just some for what you actually encounter in the real world. Um, the, the experience comes that first year on the job, you're just getting bombarded with new stuff and it's really up to you to, uh, to kind of absorb as much as possible about, you know, what it's like to be an engineer in the real world. Um, but you know, a degree in engineering gives you a really great basis to start from. It gives you the ability to, to problem solve technically. It gives you sort of the foundation to launch off of to solve problems. Um, and, and that's really what it's great for. And I can say that it, it did that for me. Cool. So when you ran the specialized test lab, my understanding at the time was that you oversaw an expansion of that lab and accordingly the number of different tests you could do in-house. Can you describe what sort of tests that were being done before you arrived and then what others you grew into? Yeah, I think it's funny, right? To, uh, to, to truly understand my, um, my sort of evolution of specialized, it's kind of important to understand when I started there and kind of what the company was like. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, um, the company was, it was still reasonably small. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I would say in terms of, in terms of overall size, less than half of what it is today, probably even less than that. And it was just at the crest of when Specialized really started to catch fire and started to um, uh, become the kind of major player that it is today. Mm-hmm. So the engineering department when I signed on was, I think, six people. Today, it's probably in the 30s. Um, and the test lab was like the wild west, you know, there was a, there was a sort of grizzly old technician down there, Joe Cahoon, who was kind of this awesome dude. And uh, they had an intern and they had no processes. They had, it was just, it was just pretty wild. So when I, uh, signed on immediately just saw opportunity to make it a lot better, just, you know, organized, better communication with engineering department. And then, uh, after I kind of got that done, it was an expansion of the tests to make them more representative of what uh, goes on in the real world. Okay. So spent years um, doing research and development, trying to um, just improve the tests, make them more relevant, make them um, give the engineers really the, the, a great 
um, representative of what's going on in the real world in the lab so we could just quickly iterate with confidence that the changes we made were going to reflect in the ride. Okay. Interesting. Now, from there, you joined the product development team at Specialized. Uh, can you describe what your role was in the creation of that fifth generation of the Tarmac, the one they refused to call the SL Next? It was just the new, yeah. the new Tarmac. So frustrating. But it's just the next one. I think we, I think that one would have officially been the SL5, right? Right. Yeah. But we weren't allowed to say that in anything we wrote about the bike. We, yeah, yeah, we weren't allowed to say that. So the, um, I was actually involved in Tarmacs for a long time, even in the test lab. Mm-hmm. So the, the roles weren't so, uh, strict and rigid back when I was in the test lab and I was a bike racer. I loved bikes and I was working with the guys on uh, tarmac to make it better. We had just, uh, when I came on, we had just sponsored uh, quick step mm-hmm. quick step was and, and they were on the Tarmac SL, the original, and, not the original, sorry, second second version. And um, they hated it. I mean, they absolutely hated it. They were coming off of times. Um, they thought that that thing was just a noodle. It just was not ready for the Pro Tour. So we went through this massive development effort to try to get those bike guys a bike that would be really competitive. And that was um, all that work ended up being the Tarmac SL2, which to this day, I think, is the biggest jump in a bike that Specialized ever had from the SL to the SL2 in terms of how it rode, the way it looked, the fit and finish, everything about that bike was was just leaps and bounds better. And it was really due to the fact that uh, Quickstep had pushed us to come out with a competitive bike. Mm-hmm. So that was the development of all those tests, the data acquisition, our understanding of carbon fiber, all those things kind of came together on that bike. And I was a big part of that team and was a part of the Tarmac team every year from from that point forward. Um, on the SL5 that you're talking about, or the unnamed Tarmac, uh, we were the the whole kind of idea of rider first came about, mm-hmm. and uh, it was myself and Chris Delucio. We used to ride together all the time. We're still really close friends, and uh, we would just kind of chat about bikes and and talk about cars and all you know things on these long bike rides, and we just started to notice how different our experiences were with the same bike. Now, talk so a little bit about. Kinda- Talk a little bit about the size you are and the size Chris is. Right. I guess that's an incredibly important thing to, to know in this, it's a data point. In, this, <laughs> in this part of the conversation. So I'm tall. I am uh, six foot three, six foot four, and, uh, you know, 185, 190 pounds. Chris is, I mean, how tall is Chris? Five, six, five, five? It, it's, it's, there's not a lot of Chris, yeah. but, but it's all business. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So Chris rides, so Chris rides a 52, I ride a 58 or a 61. So uh, we started to notice that our bikes, we were having a completely different experience while riding the same exact bike. We were always riding pretty much the same bike. And, uh, and we would kind of talk about our feedback, our experience. We talked a lot about how bikes handled. And it was just sort of this we kind of just had this moment where we're like, you know, this is, this shouldn't be how it is, right? A tarmac should be a tarmac. Why is your tarmac so different from my tarmac? So that kind of sparked this, 
two-year odyssey of uh, getting to the bottom of exactly how a bike is ridden, uh, the most important aspects of, how, of, of, of bike handling and the tests that, that predict that, and then developing uh, the line to be able to match the, the riding experience for a tall person versus basically everybody down the line. That, mm-hmm. that was sort of the genesis of that. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, in, in working with that, I, I mean, you weren't by any means the first to do this, but this did represent a change in terms of, you know, there was a distinctly different layup for each of the different sizes. Uh, what did it take for you to convince everybody that, you know, this was necessary? And what did it mean in terms of working with your factory? Yeah, there was some convincing. There continued to be convincing, actually. It wasn't, um, you know, not everybody bought in initially. I think everybody, when you kind of speak about the idea, people, they agreed, right? I think we took it to a level, especially with that bike, that had never been done before. And I think even when you uh, when you think about it, I think the conversation around bicycle performance changed to where people became very aware of the difference between sizes. And I noticed that when you look at the sort of strings and blog posts or whatever, that was never really a big topic of conversation. And that mm-hmm. became it just it just became in people's awareness afterwards. So I think that was cool. Um, it it created a tremendous uh, it was a total pain in the ass. I mean, let's just be honest, doing <laughs> the, the engineering from new engineering for every single size was we, we probably went a little bit overboard on on the first go. Um, and um, yeah, because you're making different forks for for the different sizes you're making. It's a to, it's a ground up layup for each one. Uh, it just was I mean, it was a monumental effort and we did it in rim and in disc. I mean, it was just crazy. It was just crazy. So the skew count went way up. Um, I think it was great. I think it was uh, a great bike. Um, I still love that bike. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that to me is, is still the, the benchmark for how a race bike should handle. It's a pretty dynamite bike. Yeah. It's I, a good one. It's a good I one. will never forget my first ride on it. It's like, oh, <laughs> okay. You guys, you guys <laughs> have been up to something. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> uh, then you left Specialized. Uh, you told me that Specialized, uh, you left Specialized because you were dissatisfied with the process of being a factory customer. For yeah. for listeners who aren't familiar with that process, let's start by just laying the groundwork. Would you describe what the tensions point tension points were for you as an engineer? Yeah, I think the first thing that's important to understand, a lot of people don't realize this, but most uh, bicycle manufacturers, they do not produce their own bicycles. Um, when, I, when I say most, I'm talking like really most, like almost all of them. Right? Well, the exceptions so, are really kind of surprising because you've got like KHS and you've got Haro with Mozzie. I mean, the mm-hmm. exceptions are not in the places that you would necessarily think. Um, right. I mean, sure giant, I think, giant, but still. I think giant is sort of the only major player who still produces their own bikes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they produce a lot of bikes for other people. That's no big surprise. And right. then Merida, obviously Merida, but, uh, I'm pretty sure Merida doesn't make their carbon bikes. So somebody else is making their carbon fiber bikes. 
<laughs> uh, I know, I know, I know. And it's so it's this crazy thing, right? You've got um, you've got your this thing you believe in. You you're trying real hard to um, to make it something great that, that that's going to go out in the world and and sell and be this you know really impactful thing. And then you have to go and actually get that thing made. And uh, getting it made is really challenging, right? So making You've been to our factory. You've been to some factories, Patrick. You know that the 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 act of actually producing the bicycle is pretty complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when you are designing something, and you don't have really any say on how that thing is going to be produced, it it limits you. Okay, first of all, it puts you in a box because you're saying, okay, I've got this factory. This factory can only do X, Y, and Z, and they will not want to. Uh, they're not going to want to adapt to be able to do something this new way, right? Because yep. let's say I got this cool idea, but it's not going to work with how they're making it right now. Well, too bad. You're not going to be able to do that idea. You got to come up with another idea that fits within their molds. Um, so that's kind of the first point. Uh, the second thing is, is it's just there's always a tension between uh, creative and manufacturing. There always will be, right? Because um, manufacturing is is uh, disciplined. It is getting stuff done and it is about just what is the easiest way to get from step A to step B. Uh, creative is not like that. Right. Um, so there's always going to be just a natural tension there and that's great. And when those two sides come together, really good things can happen. But when those two sides aren't part of the same company and they don't speak the same language and they, they're, it, it just gets, it just gets complicated is the only way that I can possibly <laughs> describe it. And, you know, it, it does work. It works all the time. There's companies producing nice bikes in Asia right now. Um, but I will say that a majority of, of your time when you are working for one of these big companies becomes convincing and selling. When you have some, an idea, you first have to convince and sell internally. And then you have to go and try to lobby to get this thing made in the way that you want and it's just you just want to you just want to go for it, you know, and it, it becomes um, it just became extremely frustrating having to sort of plow through all of that bureaucracy to be able to get what you wanted done. Wow. Uh, OK, so then you left specialized, as we said, uh, your 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 intention, I guess I should say, was to start a consultancy. Um, yeah. And that lasted, what, 48 hours? Because now you're the head of engineering for HIA Velo, the parent company for Allied Cycle Works. Dude, what yeah. happened? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had – I was uh, not alone in sort of my feelings about how we were developing product and sort of my frustrations. I was with a guy named Chris Mertens, great friend, super bright guy. Um, he was – we, we were just kept on asking ourselves, why is why is nobody doing it here? Why is nobody doing it in the United States? And we couldn't see, you know, when you look at the costs and the costs, at the, the, the true cost of developing product in Asia, you started to realize that that you could do it in the States. You could do it in the States. You could be reasonably competitive. Yes, it's more expensive. But at the end of the day, you could get better product and you'd be much happier and why does it have to be so difficult and so crazy to go get a bicycle made? It just seemed, it just started to seem crazy to us both. 
So we decided that we were going to leave. We were going to take our know-how in developing carbon fiber stuff, and we were going to open a consultancy for product development um, for people who didn't really know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And we were going to make the parts for them um, just as a prototype basis. They could go get it made how they wanted. Uh, and then we were going to use sort of our time and energy and capital that we made doing that to uh, launch our own bicycle company. That was sort of the idea. Oh, because um, we had ideas, we had designs on doing it, doing it here and actually doing what HIA is doing. And then, yeah, like uh, a couple days after I quit, I got a call from from T- TK, Tony Carklins, and uh, he says, my name's Tony. Uh, I just bought the Guru factory and I don't know how I don't know how to do any of this. And I need some people who do. You got to come to Little Rock and check it out. Um, so that's exactly what happened. I hopped on a plane. I think that was in shoot. I guess that was in March. And um, I was on the ground in Little Rock April 1st working in the factory. Wow. And I was visiting there in May and you guys, you looked like you had it wired by that time. We did not. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've been told that, but still, you you know, you had me fooled anyway. It was certainly confident. I mean, we were, it was, it was invigorating, you know, Patrick, it's like one of those things where you, you sort of work, you do, um, you're sort of plugging along, doing your thing at a job and, and it's, not necessarily all that inspiring or whatever. And then you get an opportunity to do something really great. That's, that's yours. And that is, um, that you feel can have a big impact and you know, the, the energy is just limitless. So we just, man, we just went, I just worked so much in that period. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Uh, okay. So, you know, I've written about the strengths that you see in owning your own factory and working alongside the production staff, yeah. Can you describe the big advantages that you see that Allied has over your competition? Sure. Um, I think we have several. So obviously, as we've kind of spoken about before, owning your own process is one of those things. So I truly believe that the the big breakthroughs in bikes are going to come through uh, process improvements, not necessarily new gadgets. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you need both. But, you know, the bike is stripped down. It's a beautiful thing. We don't need to make it too complicated. (laughs) Um, Let's just make it like really beautiful and great and do our best to improve composite manufacturing to make it uh, more cost effective, more environmentally friendly and um, try to pass those savings on to the consumer. We want to give people total transparency into what we're doing, which I think is really nice. You're buying something that you that you love. That's probably the third most expensive thing you're going to buy behind a home and a car. Yep. And some people, the bike actually eclipses the car. <laughs> no names mentioned. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, to give somebody a, a deeper connection to that product, I think is really is nice. And I think it's something that, that we are able to do that other people aren't. We can show you how your bike was made, who made your bike. I mean, shoot, you can come check out the factory and watch it go down the line yourself if you want, which is really great. Um, those are kind of the touchy feely things The uh, what we can also do because we're, it, we're really just in time inventory is we can give you more personalized service. So you can pick your paint color, you can pick your finish, you can pick your builds. Um, and we are, 
you know, we don't have to take a bet on a standard or a bet on something because we're just, you know, this thing is made two weeks before it's, it's going to you. Um, so I think that's, that's pretty, pretty powerful. We don't have to come up with seven colors that we think are going to change the world next year. We let you pick your own color. Um, so that, that's kind of, that's kind of a nice, um, those are some, that's some of the more practical things. And the other thing is, is when you're doing everything yourself, it's amazing how lean your company can be. You don't have all these middlemen, um, that are stealing margin, uh, that are just adding these layers of bureaucracy to your process. You just go from, um, in development, you know, we are making, we are, uh, breaking, we are analyzing, and then we are making again. And we're doing everything right in one spot. Marketing is there watching the whole thing. The sales guys get to see it all. Just having all that stuff kind of wrapped up together gives everybody such a, uh, a much greater appreciation for, for what that bike means. And I think it just permeates through the, the company culture and just our ability to, to, to rapidly um, develop and get bikes into the market. So it, there's a lot of advantages. It's, and plus it's way cooler. I mean, what's, it's so lame to just do, <laughs> to do all this work and then just, and then just send it away and then, you know, hope and pray that it comes back the way you wanted it uh, several months later. I mean, getting your hands dirty and doing it yourself is, is just way more satisfying. I can imagine, you know, one of the things that both you and Tony have talked to me about is your ability to make process changes uh, you know, basically on the fly, uh, you decide, okay, no, we're going to lay the head tube up this way. Uh, yeah. And I mean, okay, that, that has an obvious appeal, but I think a lot of people don't really understand what the limitation is on the other side when you're dealing with uh, a factory in Asia and, you know, you've got to order thousands of bikes ahead of time and they're sitting in a, uh, a warehouse. Explain that a little bit more if you would. Yeah, I think, you know, the, when, when you're making, when you have to, when, you're rely, when your business relies on large inventories, you need to be, man, you need to be really confident that whatever is in those, uh, in that inventory is good and saleable and ready to go. I mean, you need to be positive, right? So there are just loads of tests and checks. Now, this is for the good companies. There are companies that probably don't do all those checks and just make the gamble, right? Right. Um, but then, you know, you, you run into issues, you know, I mean, that's why we see these recalls, you know, there's, there's sort of stuff that gets out into the field and you've got, you've still got 6,000 out in shops or whatever it is. Um, it is, it is complicated once the machine gets rolling and you're sort of building inventory to make a change. And so, I mean, what happens is, is you'll be through development, you may find something and you have to do a running change. That running change is just, it is painful. I mean, it's painful, it is complicated, and then you need to figure out ways to remedy what's going on in the field. Um, for us, if we run into an issue like, um, I mean, it could be anything, right? It could be like a a uh, paint cracking issue or, you know, on the bike that we sent you, right? There was a area in the seat collar that had a little paint crack on it. And it was something in the first, whatever, 25 or 30 bikes that we had noticed. We made a running change. We don't have 6,000 bikes in inventory. The next one that came through was fixed. 
Yeah. And then we're just rolling, you know, and that's, that's really, that's nice. I mean, but it's not, that's not just a, a function of doing it yourself. It's also a function of just our size. You know, we're just, we're not that big. We're not making 40,000 frames. Um, things get a lot more complicated when you're doing, when you're doing that kind of volume. Yeah. I can appreciate that. Yeah. 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 Okay, so now we're really going to nerd out, as if we haven't already done that. <laughs> when I've looked at layup schedules for some of the most popular bikes on the market, and I've seen probably more layup schedules than I was supposed to, um, I've seen a lot of square and rectangle plies of pre-preg carbon fiber. There yeah. will be a few unusual uh, shapes, you know, usually around the head tube or the bottom bracket. But other than that... Somebody could probably fool me into thinking someone was making a carbon fiber toy box. Yeah. Would you please describe how having complete control over the plotter can allow you to make a bike that is both lighter and stronger? Um, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. The, there's a reason that they're square and rectangle. Okay. So most uh, companies who are producing really large scales, they don't want to have to run things through the plotter. The plotter for them takes a long time, costs money, just, you know, it, it adds a layer of complication for them. So they would rather cut plies with a die cutter and a die cutter uh, allows you to, so you just picture like this machine, there's a, a shape in the, in a, in the, a really sharp, basically knife edge in a, in a shape usually a rectangle or a square, and they put, you know, 10, 20 plies down at once, and then there's just a big press that goes and just chunk and cuts all those plies at once, uh, which is super efficient. You know, they just can, they just deal them out like, uh, like shuffling cards at that point. And, um, but it does limit you in terms of what you can do as far as layup. So they'll do those die cuts. They'll do them in, uh, 45 degree orientation. They'll do them in a negative 45. So sort of the opposite of what they are of that is they'll do a zero degree and they'll do a 90 degree and that's pretty much it. Okay. So, uh, man, I don't know how nerdy you want to get, but that just having those uh, orientations, it, it causes, it, it's very limiting. It's very limiting of what you can do in the layup. Okay. So for instance, You've got a 45, 45, uh, 90, and a zero. In our top tube, we have uh, we have 30 degree plies, we have 22 degree plies, and we have 18 degree plies. All right, and that is to counteract exactly what is going on in the top tube when you're handling your bike. So we're able to, with a much more efficient use of material, um, give you get exactly the performance we want just because we're orienting the fibers exactly how we want them. Mm -hmm. Now that's just the orientation. Now shape is a whole nother thing, right? We picture, we got all these complex shapes, top tubes, down tubes, head tubes, and then picture trying to take a piece of paper and drape it around that thing and how funky it's going to look when you do it, the edges where they're going to line up. Uh, what you really want, is that that ply is going to drape over in such a way that the ply on the other side and all its mating plies are going to just match up perfectly with just the smallest amount of overlap so you don't have a bunch of redundant material. So that's what giving you total control over the shape does. So shape plus orientation gives you 
the sort of best performance uh, exactly where you need it with the least amount of overlap and redundant material. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, in my head, I liken it to, you know, walking into a kitchen and you've got salt and pepper. You walk into another kitchen, you've got salt and pepper and cumin and basil and, you know, just a whole host more ingredients to liven up the food. Uh, it's, it strikes me is that, yeah, it must be really very limiting in terms of what you want to accomplish. It is. I think that the, the, yeah, it's funny. I've used sort of that, almost that same analogy before because you sort of picture if you were a, a chef, right? Mm-hmm. And you came up with this great recipe. You got a great recipe and then you just hand that recipe off to another kitchen to cook it. And you just expect that it's going to be delicious, right? You're of course open. not. That you would never, you would never do that, right? You would, you're gonna go shopping, you're gonna get your ingredients, you're gonna, you're gonna build that recipe, right? And then, of course, the technical part, the execution part, is making it yourself, mm-hmm. and that's where the rubber meets the road, and that is, that's the difference between making it yourself and having someone else do it. Yeah. Okay. That that I follow. You know, I get the sense from many cyclists, certainly some among my readers, uh, and I, I would say our listeners as well, that they don't yet understand the relationship between the amount of carbon fiber in a frame and ride quality. Everyone wants a lighter bike, okay? Yeah. But that's because, you know, they think that weight is really going to influence how fast they can ride, but it doesn't really have that much to do with how fast you can go on it. Would you please explain how less material makes for a bike that feels better out on the road? Yeah, it doesn't always. Um, so there is there there's sort of a so I mean to your point, weight is is not that big a deal. Obviously, you got to get within the range, right? You got to be in the ballpark, um, otherwise the thing just feels like a tank. Yeah. Um, but I have ridden fairly heavy bikes that felt pretty darn great, mm-hmm. uh, and I have ridden super light bikes that felt really, really terrible. Sure. So for me, the, the key is there's all these things that determine your, that determine how a bike is going to ride. All right. There's just, there's a lot of important things, and especially in a carbon fiber bike, the, the amount of decisions you can make in order to get to that final ride, there's a lot of decisions to be made and a lot of tweaks you can make, which is part of the fun of it. Um, and weight is one of those things. But the thing that trumps them all is is how that bike handles, which is geometry and it is the stiffness of the chassis. Okay. And then also how comfortable it is. If you don't have those things, then the weight is just the weight is just a distant, it's a distant fourth place to those other ones, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and with the modern materials and the tools that we have to produce a frame that's, you know. 850, 900 grams, it's not terribly difficult, right? And if you're in that range, it's light enough. I mean, it is light enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the other stuff, getting the other things nailed that, uh, that separate one bike from the next. So to take a bike and to lift it up, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything. I mean, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. You really have to get out there and ride it and experience it uh, to be able to, to determine you know, is this thing really any good? And, and one 800 gram bike is not like every other 800 gram bike. They are very, very different. Yep. Yep. For sure. 
I guess one of the things that really surprised me was that, you know, to your point earlier about controlling the shapes of the plies and the orientation, you know, once you've got a really big ply that's being wrapped halfway around a tube into places where it doesn't really do much structurally, it just ends up making the frame feel more dead. Uh, and that's one of the things I continue to rail against on some bikes that I've ridden that they just feel like blocks of wood and yeah. getting rid of that excess material is so important to ending up with a bike that feels lively. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent agree. hundred percent agree. I think that you can, there's so, there's a lot that goes into that sort of dead feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just excess material, excess weight. Um, bad layup schedule. I mean, all those things kind of play a role because it's, it's basically that, that feeling is the bike giving you, giving you stiffness, giving you something where you do not want it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't actually offer anything. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Yeah. So when I visited you guys last year, the final hour you and I were together, you dropped what was for me a total bombshell. And I was really bummed because we didn't have time to dig into it uh, in the time we had remaining. You told me you were a real fork nerd and that fork development was something that you had that had really come to consume you. Um, That's certainly my interpretation of what you were saying. My takeaway, I'm not saying this is verbatim what you said to me, Um, but I'm really curious to hear what it is about forks that you are finding so interesting you know what what was this rabbit hole for you i get that it's a complicated structure but break it down for us i mean don't you love forks patrick (laughs) doesn't everybody love forks i'm still more interested in frames i don't think about forks as much as i think about (laughs) that's the whole that's my whole point that's my whole this this is exactly you've made my point for me so forks are okay when you break down the the level of importance between the frame and the fork. Obviously, everything works in unison, right? A bike is stripped down. There's not a lot of extra stuff going on, right? <laughs> yes. But if you get your head tube angle right and you get your fork rake right and everything like that and your front end geometry is good and your trail is dialed, everything, the the fork just plays such an enormous role in how that bike handles. I mean, it is huge. And it is I feel like it is so often overlooked. It's just sort of this swept under the rug is this thing that just holds the front wheel and kind of, but no, it's, it's everything. I mean, the, that front end steering geometry, it plays, it, it has to be right without that. Nothing else matters, right? You can, you can get every, you can nail everything. You can nail your layup, you can nail your weight, you can nail your arrow shapes or whatever. If you don't have your, your fork performance and your steering geometry 100% nailed, you have a turd on your hands. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And if the fork's uh, not and, stiff and also, enough. Yeah, and, and from also from a uh, from engineering standpoint and manufacturing standpoint, uh, forks are tough. I mean, they're tough. They are, they're a difficult challenge. They're very cantilevered out. They carry a lot of... Um, they carry a lot of stress up near the crown, especially disc brake forks. And, uh, and they're, they're just a really fun, a fun challenge. And I think they're just beautiful too. I think a nice looking fork just looks, it just looks great. It just looks great. There are still a lot of ugly forks on the market. So I'm with you there. Yes. Uh, Okay. So speaking of discs, 
What were some of the challenges that you encountered aside from, okay, I've got to handle these braking forces Yeah. in terms of the flex pattern of the fork? Because I was, I remember when everybody started talking disc brakes for road bikes, I was thinking, oh, all these forks on these bikes that I love, I love how they feel. This is all going to change because they've got to be stiffened up so much down near the dropout. Yeah. How did you how did you get on top of that so that the forks we're riding today on disc brake road bikes don't feel like dogs? So there there is some okay. So obviously there's some additional stress down near the dropout. Um, okay, so this is we're gonna we're gonna get into it now, Patrick. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, what really affects how a, a fork rides? is the the sort of blades of the fork okay for this for the lateral right you need to have nice blades you need to have um a good shape for torsion you wouldn't realize it right but the the action that you're using to steer it's extremely subtle but you the the trail on your fork okay the trail on your sort of steering system Mm -hmm. it applies just the slightest amount of torque through your fork that uh that you are reacting in your hands and that's how that's how you get feel from your bike all right it's incredibly important it is truly your connection to your steering and so the torsional stiffness of your fork is extremely important um and all of those things are mainly dictated by areas that are away from that dropout okay so the areas that you have to stiffen for the disc brake forces are, they don't really affect ride quality that much, okay? And, okay. The, and the area that you do have to stiffen up is pretty short. You know, you don't have to take it all the way up the leg. It's it's an area that's pretty close to the edge of the, um, the disc brake caliper. Now, stepping back even more, about, I would say it was probably like 10, 12 years ago, um, there was a testing standard that came out it was called the uh, it was the CEN, right? It was the Central European Norm, mm-hmm. and they launched this uh, fork impact test that was extremely rigorous. It was very very hard, and it changed um, it changed forks forever because uh, carbon fiber forks at the time were almost all failing that test. Um, so everything kind of came up to that standard, mm-hmm. which made fork crowns probably slightly stronger than they needed to be, um, but made them real strong. So then when disc brakes came around, the the crown was already really beefy to meet that other test that you didn't have to reinforce anymore to be able to pass the disc brake fatigue tests. Um, and if you watch the disc brake tests, the majority of the stress is still at the crown. I mean, it is really, really tough on the on the crown. There is, uh, like I said, some additional stress in the leg, but really, it, it's it's in the crown. Interesting. Um, and if you'd ever like to see it, I'll show you. It's pretty crazy. The fork flex is like crazy. I mean, it's so much. Uh, yes, I want to see it sometime. That's that's right. yes. Right. I'm, in. Right. I'm in. I'm <laughs> in. So I guess the point that this kind of circles all back to the to one point is that it didn't really affect the ride quality that much. The ride quality had been affected back when they made that change. Mm-hmm. You know, 10, 12 years ago, and uh, and then to get over the hump on disc brakes, it it wasn't. It wasn't th- th- that big of a hurdle. Okay, interesting. 
you're working with some, shall we say, unusual materials uh, these days. You're working with Anagra. Uh, yeah. You're working with Textream. And mm-hmm. uh, I've heard some talk of Cerakote. I don't even know what that is. Uh, okay. To my knowledge, only two other bike companies are currently working with Textream. So you know, give us a quick little breakdown on what those materials are. Yeah, so that's part of the fun of doing it in the States. Own your own manufacturing. You get a lot of phone calls from people who are inventing cool materials and they want to see that stuff used commercially. So just to give you like a, a little, another sort of little bit more background, all of the energy and effort in composites is in aerospace. That's where it is. It's where the money is. That's where, you know, people are getting their doctorates working on stuff in those companies. They're not, you know, to work at those companies. It's not to be in the bike business. Uh, so they're making rockets, they're making airplanes, they're making stuff that, that takes 10, 12, 15 years to, to produce the first one, you know? Um, so it, it can be, uh, a little bit frustrating when you're, you're sort of spending, you know, close to a career working on one or two projects and you never see that stuff come into fruition. So when they see the opportunity to use some of this materials they're developing for aerospace into something that's changing all the time and cool and has, um, uh, you know, commercial viability, it's exciting for them. And a lot of these people in these aerospace companies, they also ride bikes. So they kind of follow what we're doing and they're like, oh, this would be a great application for what we're working on and we get phone calls like that all the time which is really really fun so the first it, you know right now we are we're working with some tech stream anegra and like you said we're playing around with some cerakote stuff um and those are the first they will not be the last uh because th- these things are just coming at us faster than we can handle them so anegra for instance anegra is a, a polypropylene fiber it doesn't add any stiffness, but it adds a lot of toughness to the structure. So, and it doesn't tear. It doesn't tear like carbon fiber does. So it's kind of like Kevlar in that way, only quite a bit lighter. Mm. So you can put it in areas that uh, you you are more likely to have strike, like side of the top tube with your handlebar, or we put in our seat stays because seat stays are often vulnerable, and we put it in the fork crown because you need your fork to stay together, uh, and. Yeah, it's good when they do that. So the idea is just to use, you know, integrate different materials that are going to benefit the rider in real life stuff, right? So it's not all about stiffness to weight. It's about, hey, if I tip this thing over and crash, am I, is it toast? Right. Um, and the answer may still be yes. But what we want to, what we want to ensure is that that person can get on their bike and ride home um, and then maybe notice their bike is cracked and then say, Hey, is, you know, what, what can I do about this thing? Yeah. Yeah. Tech, tech stream is super cool stuff. It is there. So the whole thing with tech stream is their spread toe. So they take the fibers and they, they spread them out really, really thin. So they have these really, really thin, thin, uh, kind of almost like surface veils and they provide a little bit of surface toughness. Um, it also helps with, um, uh, part quality. So part quality out of the tool, the tech stream, because it's a weave, uh, it allows air a path to get out of the part in molding. So you don't get as many trapped little air bubbles and voids. 
So that's kind of a cool little side benefit. Mm. Um, and then the product we're using is actually the tech stream with the Inegro woven right into it. Oh, so it's pretty cool. It's pretty trick. Yeah. Uh, extremely it's pricey stuff. It's really expensive. Um, it's on the order of like, I think five or six times more expensive than our standard prepreg. And to my knowledge, normally when you use a layer of TechStream, you can eliminate at least two layers of another material. Um, is the, are you getting similar sorts of benefits that way? Uh, I would not say quite that dramatic. So it doesn't, it doesn't add a ton in, in the quantities that we're using. It doesn't add a ton in terms of performance, but what it does is it gives us the opportunity to weave in the, um, that protective layer without having huge costs. And it actually, you know, the, the fibers are actually doing something. They're oriented in a way that is adding some benefit, some strength Mm -hmm. benefit. Uh, so that's, that's really why we're doing it and it's replacing I don't, I don't know if it's a a one for one a two for one replacement but it's it's somewhere in between <laughs> not okay. quite two for one for us all right um and then the cerakote is something we're playing around with we're, we don't we don't have any bikes for sale with cerakote in it yet but the um but i think we probably will and it, for people who are into guns they'll really like Cer- they really they'll know what cerakote is so Cerakote is, it's, it's a finishing option, just like a paint, only it is not paint. It is, it's sprayed on as kind of, um, it's almost like a dry powder, similar to almost like a powder coat. Uh, and it, but it bonds with the surface. It is not like, uh, it doesn't behave like paint it actually becomes chemically bonded to the substrate. Okay. Which is really cool. And it is incredibly thin. So, uh, you know, we're talking about paint jobs that are like 20 grams kind of thing, um, oh. where a normal paint job is in the in the 100s. So you can save a significant amount of weight. And then also it, it is uh, chemically resistant. You can wipe it with acetone if you want. It's extremely tough. Um, it's cool. And it's really techy. It's got a really techy feel and and uh, and, you know, it doesn't it doesn't chip or flake like paint does. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool stuff, pretty cool stuff. So we're still playing around with it. We've sprayed some bikes with it. We're riding them around. Um, we're really excited about the possibility. It doesn't have that sort of gloss and shine like paint does. It's a matted finish. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're into sort of that matte sort of techy looking finish, it could be, I mean, it's, it's really, it's pretty cool. It's really cool. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, at this point, I don't suppose you can talk about future models that you guys are going to release, can you? I mean, I can talk in generalities. Okay, talk we in generalities. Stuff, we, have, we have stuff coming down the pipe pretty soon. Um, so, I mean, actually, you know, the, the, the TechStream product that I was talking about is actually for future. That's for future use. We're not using that in today's alphas and all roads and alpha discs. Um, but we are launching a new platform coming up in the fall. Um, it will be for fatter tires. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's going to be loads of fun. Uh, we are making our first parts now. And, um, I mean, it's not totally surprising to go after that. Our, the, the all road is, I mean, you've, you've ridden the all road. The all road is a road bike. I mean, it's a road bike that fits big tires. Yep. And for a lot of people that is great. It is great. Right. 
but it's not it, it doesn't do um, it's not as aggressive as some of these other uh, sort of off-road bikes mm-hmm. and we feel like there's a place for that and we're gonna uh, we're gonna go there uh, will will this new platform maybe have a, a rear part that moves no 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 <laughs> Okay. Well, I'm still interested. Okay. <laughs> uh, Not yet. Maybe someday, Patrick, but we're just, we're, we're just, that's, we're, that's not yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. I, I get that. That's a, a big undertaking. Someone's um, going to do it. Someone's going to do it really, a really cool job of it too. I hope they do. Um, I don't know. We're going to be the company to get there first, but that's going to be, that's, it, I think it'll be cool. I think it'll be cool. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, Hey, Thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Patrick, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, man. Uh, well, uh, next time I have a chance to get out there, we'll go for a ride. How about that? Yes. Yeah, deal. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks to my guest, Sam Pickman, for joining me on the poll. You know, in addition to his interest in bikes, he also has an obsession with cutlery. This is not just about forks. To learn more about his work, you can visit AlliedCycleWorks.com. There will be a link in our show notes at Red Kite Prayer. That's it for this episode of The Poll. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your media. Finally, if you're not already listening to RKP's other podcast, The Pace Line, co-hosted by Celine Yeager, a.k.a. The Fit Chick from Bicycling Magazine, I encourage you to give us a listen. Until next week, have a great ride.